Our passage this morning, once again, is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. And I'll be looking at just four verses this morning. Luke chapter 4, verses 1, sorry, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Luke 11, 1 to 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. This is the word of our Lord. I would ask you to please be seated, but... Remember to keep standing in your heart as we consider God's word this morning together. Well, let's pray again together. Our great and glorious Father, Lord, we praise you for you are our Father. Lord, though you are the holy, holy, holy God. And Lord, we are weak and full of sin. Yet, Lord, through the death of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, you have made a way for us through the veil that we could enter into the Holy of Holies, that we could enter into the very presence of holiness and call you Father. Lord, I pray that through the proclamation of your word this morning that we would see this great privilege and this great responsibility of of seeing you for who you are and praising you for who you are and praying to you for who you are and living lives in according in accordance with who you are. And likewise, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see the advance of your kingdom to be our priority. Lord, that you would help us to seek the advance of your kingdom in our hearts in the hearts of unbelievers through evangelism and in your church. Your church, Lord Jesus, that you have purchased with your blood. Hear our prayers, for we ask not in our own name or in any pretended righteousness that we have of our own, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Amen. How's your prayer life? Are you comfortable with your prayer life? Three years ago, as part of my doctoral research, I did a survey of the congregation. Several of you will remember that survey. And in that survey, I asked several questions that were were designed to help get a sense of where the church is in prayer where the church is individually in prayer. I, I know how the church is corporately in prayer, 
but I wanted to get a sense of where each one of you were at individually. Now, if you'd like to take that survey, I could uh, give me your email. I'd be happy to send it to you. Because I do, there we have a, the church has grown quite a bit since then. But but it was, it was interesting in the in the context of that prayer. One of the of one of that survey. One of the key questions that I asked the congregation was if if they personally felt they needed to grow in prayer. If if you personally felt you needed to grow in prayer, and just ask yourself that question now. Again, do you feel like you personally need to grow in prayer? Remember last week we looked at Mary and Martha and we, we talked about the, the contrast between Martha who was, was troubled and anxious about many things and, and Mary who was content to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. And the counterpart that we have living as we do after the ascension of Christ and awaiting the return of Christ is to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his word, to the scriptures. And this is, again, the, the, the greatest privilege that we have as Christians is to, to be able to hear from God in this word. And the, the second, the one that we're looking at here this morning, is, is like it, the privilege of talking to God. God speaks to us in his word, and we talk back to God in prayer. This is a, an insurmountable privilege, but also it is a great and glorious responsibility that you and I have corporately and that you and I have individually to pray to God. And not just to pray to God about ourselves and, and the things that, that we need and, and trying to, to advance the kingdom of self, but as we think about the glory of God as we seek to, to advance God's kingdom also in the church. As we'll see, this, this prayer is a corporate prayer. This is one that we don't just pray for ourselves, but we pray for our brothers and sisters. We pray for the, our brothers and sisters in this church family and for our brothers and sisters around the world. But again, how do you feel about your personal prayer life? Now, I, I've got a feeling that if I were to ask that survey, to, to send out that survey again and ask the same people, that, that they would still feel the same way, that they would still feel, I really need to go in prayer. In fact, it's amazing that, that, that almost everybody in the congregation identified the fact that, yes, they need to grow in prayer. I, I think you would say the same thing. Even, even though you have, I trust by God's grace for the sanctification of his Holy Spirit, you've grown in prayer, but you would still recognize your need to grow in prayer, to realize that, that your prayers don't measure up. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story about being approached by an editor of a publishing company to write a book on prayer. And when the editor came to him, this was, was many years ago, he said when the editor came to him, he, he said he did not feel like he was ready to write a book on prayer. And so the editor proceeded to ask, well, well do you know anybody else who, who might be able to write a book on prayer? And, and so Sinclair Ferguson said he thought about who, the most godly teacher that he could think of. And so he, he gave the, the editor that name, and he said, the editor kind of smirked. He said, well, or he asked him. And he said, no. And then, he thought, then Sinclair said, okay, well, I thought about the, the next most godly person. He said, I asked him too. 
And four or five men that Sinclair Ferguson could think of, these godly, godly men, did not feel that they were able to write a book on prayer. They did not feel like, like they were in a position to be able to teach somebody else how to pray. Maybe there's been a, a time in your life that you have, have heard somebody else praying and you thought to yourself, wow, I, I wish I could pray like that. Th this person is, is just, the way that they're, they're so intimate in their prayer and the way that they're so biblical in their prayer, the way that they're so selfless in their prayer. I, was, I would love to be able to pray like that. Well, that's what happened with the disciples in Luke chapter 11. When the disciples heard Jesus pray, they were challenged. And so one of them, we're not told who, asked the Lord. He said, Lord, Teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And so the Lord responded, Jesus responded with what we see in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. Now, as part of my, my studies in my, it's really my, my preaching project, my final project for my, my, for my doctorate, I referred to this prayer as the model prayer. As the model prayer. Because in this prayer, and I was focusing there on the, the, the iteration of the prayer in the Sermon of the Mount from, uh, from the second half, well, from uh, Matthew 6, ha second half, verse 9, down to verse 13. That this prayer is, is very similar. There's a couple of things that are different, but, but very, very similar. And I referred to it as the model prayer because in that prayer, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And so that passage, and, and, and this one, is, is the model prayer, and Jesus is the model prayer. Jesus is the only one who prayed perfectly. And so in this passage, Jesus, as the one who is, is the only one, really, who could really teach us how to pray, teaches his disciples and us how to pray. And faithful men and women throughout history have have made this prayer the, the Lord's Prayer or the, the model prayer as their pattern of prayer. You can go all the way back to the church fathers, men like Irenaeus and Tertullian and Augustine, and see the practice. Martin Luther wrote a book about it called A Simple Way to Pray. So did the Puritan Matthew Henry. His book is called A Method for Prayer. Andrew Murray also wrote a book about it called With Christ in the School of Prayer. I would heartily recommend all three of these books. And so using the, the model prayer to help establish a pattern for prayer is, is, in fact, a great introduction for us to be able to begin to pray other passages of Scripture as well, especially the Psalms. The epistles make great fodder for prayer. In fact, any scripture can be turned into prayer. You might not realize this, but that, that's how George Mueller learned to pray. We think of George Mueller as a, as a great man of faith, as a, a great man of prayer, and, and by God's grace, so he was. But there was a time that George Mueller, even George Mueller, struggled in his prayer life. And he said that he would, he would pray and he would, would pray, but, but he just, he'd be distracted with all kinds of different things. And there would be no, 
there was, was no enjoyment, no, no sense of, of the blessing of prayer. Until he began to pray God's word. To turn scripture into prayer. And so he said, I speak to my father about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. So open the Bible and let the Bible guide your prayer. Listen to, to Don Whitney, one of the professors at, at Southern Seminary. The Spirit of God will use the Word of God to help the people of God to pray increasingly according to the will of God. Let me say it again. The Spirit of God will use the Word of God to help the people of God pray increasingly according to the will of God. So again, God speaks to us in his word, and we pray God's word back to God. And so this passage here in, in Luke chapter 4, like its counterpart in Matthew chapter 6, serves as an introduction to the practice of praying scripture. And Jesus' model of prayer is, is brief. It, it, it provides a, a simple outline, a simple pattern for prayer. The, the outline is so easy that even a young child can memorize it, and countless children have. However, the model prayer is exceedingly broad in its scope. It incorporates issues like the, the intimacy and the transcendence of God, the anticipation of the present advance and eschatological consummation of the Word of God, of the kingdom of God, the, the corporate nature of the Christian community, the providence of God in, in caring for His people, soteriology, sanctification, and temptation. There is literally a lifetime of prayer in this model prayer. In the parallel passage in the Sermon on the Mount, I, it, again, I formed the basis of, of much of my doctoral work. And, and I crystallized my studies into ten sermons that I preached here about, about three years ago. So ten sermons. I might be here all day. I'm just kidding. I, I did manage, I did... I taught on this at a, at, a, at a church camp for a church down in Seattle and, and managed to crystallize it down to six sermons. Okay, so we still could be here all day, or at least most of it. But my plan actually is to, is to get it down to, to two sermons. To two sermons. We'll, we'll talk this morning about the person of prayer and the priority of prayer. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the provision of prayer. Now, if you are interested in these things, I, I, would, I would commend that sermon series too, and I, I trust it would be a, a blessing to you. And if you're really interested, you can, you can, my preaching, preaching project is actually down in the library um, at the church, and you're, you're welcome to, to check that out. But again, the, these things in this passage, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. Teaching us how to pray. So, first of all, the person in prayer. The person in prayer. Luke has a major focus on prayer. Quite often throughout the, the, the gospel, of, of, according to Luke, we, we see Jesus praying. And, and notably, Jesus often prayed out loud. In fact, that was really the, the common way that people would pray. They would all, interesting enough, they would read the same way, out loud. And Jesus praying in, out loud actually also had a a didactic, a teaching function. He was in praying out loud. He was, was certainly, he was really praying. 
but he's also teaching in his prayer. Every prayer of Jesus has a, has a teaching function for the disciples and for us. But again, when, he was, when it was asked to crystallize it down to, to this one prayer, this is just these few verses is what, what we are given. Luke also includes a lot of teaching of Jesus on prayer. And again, there's formal teaching. We'll, we'll come into that in, Lord willing, in two weeks' time with, that, with verses 5 to, um, to 13, where, where, where we're, we're told, to, again, to go to God as our Father and what that means. There's a major focus on prayer. There's many parables, and a lot of them unique to Luke, that, that, where Jesus teaches about prayer, even here in, in, in verses 5 and following. Now, the disciple asks, he says, well, teach us, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so, so the fact that, that, that a, a, a teacher or a rabbi would teach his disciples to pray. And so it makes sense that, that Jesus would want, that the disciples would want Jesus to teach their rabbi to teach them how to pray. I have to say that I have been blessed with, with some discipleship and, and good discipleship as a, a young Christian, but I wasn't taught to pray. No one ever taught me to pray until much more recently. In fact, it wasn't until one day I was, I was studying with, with Nate Shaney. We, we prayed for him and his, his family, particularly his daughter Anastasia earlier. And before we began to study, Nate and I began to pray. And, and as I heard Nate pray, I asked, I said, no, I've never heard anybody pray like that. Nate, would you teach me how to pray? And so he told me that, that Don Whitney, who I mentioned the professor at Southern Seminary, taught one of the professors at Southern, taught him to pray. Don Whitney is, is the author of the excellent book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And he talks about this practice of praying scripture. And, and, and so he says that, that Dr. Whitney taught him how to pray. And so, so Nate taught me how to pray. In teaching the disciples how to pray, Jesus was teaching us how to pray Scripture. And so he begins, when you pray, say. Now, while it's possible and certainly not wrong to simply repeat the words of this prayer, it seems more likely that the intent is, is the same as in the Sermon on the Mount when, when Jesus says to the disciples, pray like this. Pray like this, that this is actually a a pattern or a model for prayer. Again, there's nothing wrong with saying the words, but that this really should be a, a framework whereby you can, you can pray through these, these individual things. As John MacArthur says, this is a skeleton on which to put on flesh. So in speaking about the person in prayer, I, I'm not referring to the prayer. I'm not referring to you as the prayer. I'm talking about the one to whom Prayer is addressed. And Jesus teaches the disciples and us to begin by saying, Father. Father. Just think for a moment about what it means for you to call the great God of the universe. Father. 
this concept of, of God as Father is indeed evident in the Old Testament. Verses like Deuteronomy 32.6 is, is not the Lord your Father who created you, who made you and established you. Or Psalm 103.13, as a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. So we, we see verses like that in the Old Testament, but it's not until the, the New Testament where we see this, this concept of, of God as Father as being more fully developed, especially through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And so in this, in this pattern of prayer, this model of prayer, we have the second, pers- second person of the Trinity te- teaching his people to pray to the first person of the Trinity. And although prayer can be made directly to God the Son, and you find those prayers evident in in Scripture, and also you can pray directly to the Holy Spirit, the general pattern of prayer is indeed to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is here telling the disciples and us how to pray. God the Son is revealing God the Father. We saw that in Luke 10, 22, that it is the Son's prerogative to reveal the Father. And now he's teaching us to pray to the Father. And there are so many things that you can pray when you pray to God, Father. That one word has an almost inexhaustible number of things that you could be praying for. Now, I don't know about you, but, but there's been times in my life that, that, that I have, have struggled to spend any, to any length of time in prayer. Oh, you pray what seems like, like been, has been ages have gone by, and you, you, you look at the clock on the wall, and it's only been five minutes. But when you begin to pray Scripture, when you begin to pray like this, even using this simple model prayer, you will find your prayer time greatly enriched and developed. And you'll find that that, that quite often time will fly in prayer. The Greek word for father is pater, pater. But the Jews who spoke Aramaic called their father Abba. Now, so the name for father was different in that culture, but it's, it's not just the word father was different. Even the, the concept for father was, was different in the time of Christ, different for a first century Middle Eastern Jew than in our modern context. In that culture, not only would a father love and care for and protect his children, but he also wielded authority and commanded respect and honor. And that was the prevailing cultural attitude during the the time and ministry of Christ. But in our culture, I believe this this attitude is increasingly rare. Fathers in our day, to a large extent, are not respected in the same way. When I think about the way that that I I hear children talking to their fathers, the the way that I even spoke to my own father, That just was even culturally completely frowned upon and, and condemned in that culture. 
We notice that even as parents, as we, as we see programming that is geared to children, we see the way that, that, that parents, that fathers in particular, are presented as being as foolish, as oafs. So when we see that kind of pattern in, in our, the programs that our, our children are watching, we, don't, we turn those off. We don't want our children watching that kind of material because we don't want them getting that into their, their heads and their hearts so that, that that is the way you're supposed to talk to or treat or view your father. But it also goes both ways. I know that, that child abuse has, has, has been a, a horrific thing throughout, throughout history. But in our culture, fathers are perhaps increasingly abusive, but certainly increasingly absent. Fathers just aren't there. Because of the, the epidemic, the plague of divorce in our culture. And so when it, when it comes to relating to God as father, some people, I've heard people say this. They say, well, I can't relate to God as my father because my father was abusive. Or I can't relate to God as my father because my father deserted us. Or, or a host of other reasons. Now, I don't want to minimize in any way any pain that was inflicted on you or, or anyone by their father. But the ultimate reason why people reject God as Father is not that they had abusive fathers. That's not why. It's because they reject God in general. They don't like the idea of the fatherhood of God because they don't like God. And so saying that, that I reject the concept of God as Father because, because of bad experiences I have with my own father is like saying I reject the model of Christ and the church being reflected in marriage because my parents had a bad marriage. Don't rely on your earthly father as a model. The, the godliest father is infinitely below God the Father. The most righteous and holy and loving father doesn't even compare. In fact, if you compare the, the godliest father and the, the most wicked father, the difference between them is, is minuscule compared to the difference between both of them and God the Father. And we'll look at this further next week in verses 5 to 13, but, but you'll see in, in the scriptures that earthly fathers are actually contrasted with God the Father. So focusing on God as your father from the Bible fosters reverence. It also fosters love and it fosters intimacy. And so to begin your prayer like this means you're, you're consciously speaking intimately to your father in heaven. And so when you pray, Father, tell your father that you love him. Tell him what you love about him. And ask him to help you love him more. So by, by telling us to call God Father, Jesus is, is emphasizing the relationship that you and I have with God. God wants you to grow in intimacy with him. Just think about that. What an indescribable privilege that God wants relationship with you. And that's why Jesus begins this way, because this is the intimacy of a father with a son and with a daughter. 
But it's not just our love for God that the fatherhood of God communicates. The fatherhood of God communicates his love for us. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. The God who created the universe and holds it together by the word of his power loves you. The God who is so holy that even angels cover their faces before him loves you. The God who is so glorious that he will illuminate the new Jerusalem just with his presence, brighter than the sun, loves you. God loves you. But you can only know God personally as Father through the gospel. Unbelievers can, can read about the concept of this. Oh, okay, the scriptures declare that, that God is a Father. and people, people write PhD thesis on this stuff who don't even know him. But through the gospel, you can know God personally as your Father. Jesus always addressed God as Father in prayer. In fact, he did so in every single prayer you see recorded of Jesus in the Gospels, except one. Except one, his cry from the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Brothers and sisters, you can call God Father because there was a time that God the Son didn't. You can call God Father because he poured out his holy wrath on his Son in your place. You can call God Father because he crushed his holy son for you. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Isaiah 55, 53, 11, or 10 rather. And in Romans 8, 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Your Father has redeemed you with nothing less than the blood of His Son. And He bids you to come to Him in prayer. Go to your Father in prayer. Brother Christian, Sister Christian, you have been adopted into God's family through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the praise of His glory, Ephesians 1.5. You are the adopted children of God. When you pray, talk to God about that too. Again, you could pray for hours and hours and hours and never run out of things to pray about when you pray like this. You are the adopted children of God. Question 37 of the Baptist Catechism defines adoption. We're, we're actually as a family just looking at that one this week. Memorizing this week, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have, re have the right 
to all the privileges of the sons of God. You can trust your heavenly Father. You can trust Him intimately, implicitly, and infinitely. You can go to God with your deepest desires, your most heartfelt needs, your most wicked sins, and know that He hears you and receives you because of His Son. So to pray according to the model prayer means to trust that your Father in heaven loves you and will give you whatever you need. It means that you have the privilege of talking to him. And so tell him what you need. Tell him your concerns. Tell him your fears. Tell him your doubts. Confess to him. He can be trusted in all things to rule wisely, to govern justly, and to providentially care for you in all things. Now the King James here includes the phrase which art in heaven, taken from the from the, the Sermon on the Mount, the parallel prayer there. The idea of, of Father it, it denotes intimacy and, and in heaven denotes transcendence. And even though the phrase is, is not here in this iteration of the prayer, the next phrase, the first petition of the prayer, also communicates God's transcendence. And so we pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name is, is the first petition. The first request of the prayer is, hallowed be your name. God is imminent. God, our Father, is in intimate relationship with his children. However, he is also transcendent. He is the holy, holy, holy God. And so we must hallow his name. And Jesus here is not just teaching us the words to say, Hallowed be your name. It's, it's not like a, a vain repetition that, that Jesus warns specifically against in the Sermon on the Mount. But they would seek God's help to earnestly regard Him as holy in our own hearts and in our own lives. Again, from the Baptist Catechism, describes this request saying, We pray that God would enable us and others to glorify Him in all that whereby He makes Himself known and that He would dispose all things to His own glory. And the Catechism cites Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And the 24 elders fall down before the throne and worship. Because God is our Father through God the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a great privilege to worship God, to fall before His throne even now. You get to exalt God. Again, this is this is a great privilege, and, and we don't normally think of this as such. We think of, well, the privilege of calling God Father, but it is a privilege to be able to glorify God. In fact, it is the great privilege that, that all of His elect will enjoy for all eternity. When you think about these, it makes you run to your knees. It makes you eager to spend time in holy communion with God in prayer. So may the Lord show you and I afresh this morning what it means to hallow God's name and may He empower you and I to do the same.
Now, when, when Jesus speaks here of, of, of hallowing God's name, we need to understand what God's name means. Okay, the, the idea of name in that culture, the name represents who you are. Okay, it's, it's, it's interesting that, that many of our last names actually come from the employment that our forebears had. So if you have the name Black or last name Black or Smith, then your forefathers were blacksmiths. My last name Tucker comes from, and also Taylor comes from, that's what, they were tailors. My ancestors were, were tailors way, way back. Your name described you. And in fact, many of our first names also have a meaning. The name John, for example, means God is gracious. I've certainly experienced the graciousness of God in my life. Now, I'm not getting into a mystical understanding of, of, of names here, but what I'm talking about is in that culture, when we talk about the name, when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, he's talking about the name of God as, as representing who God is, the, the sum total of his attributes, God's character, God's, God's person. And so, for example, we think of, of the name Yahweh, the, the highest name of God, means, means I am. Again, there's, there's so much in that name. I, mean, I am, he's the God who, who is. And quite often, it's, it's the, the name Yahweh is actually paired with an adjective to, dis, to further describe who God is. And when you see the name Lord in your Bibles, and in all capitals, it refers to, to, to this name, Yahweh. I am. And so the name of God reveals God's character. But, but then what does it mean to, to hallow God's name? To hallow God's name. Well, the English word hallow comes from the, the Middle English word used to, to this translates the Greek verb meaning make holy. To make holy. So to hallow is to make holy. It's the, the same verb that's often translated to sanctify or to set apart. And so the holiness of God means to, to separate from all that is common or profane or to set apart for sacred use. Now there are two senses of this, of God's holiness or God's separation. There's a, a, a relational separation and a moral separation. So God's holiness in one sense means that he is morally distinct from all that is sinful. And God's relational holiness also means that he is distinct from all of his creation. So God is, is again, we, we think of, of all of God's attributes. People tend to focus on the love of God, but it is actually the holiness of God that is emphasized. It's the, it's the only attribute of God that's described three times. Holy, holy, holy. In fact, all of God's attributes are holy. God's grace is holy. God's mercy is holy. God's love is holy. God's righteousness is holy. His justice is holy. All of his attributes are holy. So if God's name refers to who he is, and to hallow means to regard as holy, then to hallow God's name means to worship God for who he is, especially in his holiness. So then when you hallow God's name, when you pray, hallowed be your name, that the full sense of what that means is that you are asking God's help that you would glorify his name. And that you would, would set him apart as holy. You're praying that God will be exalted, revered, loved, feared, worshipped, obeyed, honored, and glorified as holy. 
in your own heart, in the hearts of your brothers and sisters in the local church, and in the church around the world. Brothers and sisters, you get the privilege of hallowing God's name. Like the angelic beings of Isaiah 6.3 in Revelation 4.8 proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Again, we'll get to do that for all eternity, but you get to do that right now. So by teaching us to begin our prayers like this, praising God for who he is and, and all of his holy and glorious attributes, Jesus is revealing to you your most important duty. In fact, the rest of the petitions of this model prayer actually fall under that great head. They're all incorporated under this first petition, hallowed be your name. So you're asking when you pray, hallowed be your name, you're asking that this prayer and that all of your life will be consumed with hallowing God's name. You're seeking to give God preeminence in this prayer and in your entire life. And again, not just for you individually, this is a corporate prayer. Well, now Jesus teaches what we should pray next. The priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. When I, I use this, this phrase, I'm not referring to the fact that prayer is a priority, and it is. I'm talking about what our priority should be in prayer. And so in this, the, this, the second petition of the prayer is actually parallel to the first. After revealing the unparalleled privilege, privilege of, of addressing God, the God of heaven, as our Father, Jesus now teaches us that we, and then we, teaches us that we are to hallow his name. Hallowing God's person is a priority. Now we see another vital priority. Your kingdom come. That's the second petition. Your kingdom come. The second request in this prayer is, to, is for the advance of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom refers to his reign and his rule. So this is a prayer that everything will come under God's authority. If you are seeking to hallow God's name, you will be seeking to advance God's kingdom. So Jesus is teaching here that we should pray for the advance and the establishment of his kingdom. The kingdom of God is the, the purpose and the meaning and the summation of all of history. But there's another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. And his kingdom is at war with God's kingdom. And ever since the Garden of Eden, war has raged between, on earth between the two kingdoms. And so from the fall of man to the turn of Christ and everything in between, you can see the war between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. All sin is war against God's kingdom. Your sin is war against God's kingdom. So in the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempted Eve and she ate and gave to her husband and, and he ate, Satan was declaring war on God. But in Genesis 3.15, God promises the full and final victory over Satan and his kingdom with the first promise of the gospel that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but that he would bruise, the serpent would, bru would bruise his heel. Again, this war rages throughout redemption history. But when we see the incarnation of Christ, 
we see the fulfillment of God's victory. When the angel Gabriel told Mary that she would conceive and bear a son, he said to her, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1, 32 and 33. And so Jesus came, when Jesus came into the world, he came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the coming of Christ. When God the Son took on human flesh and dwelt on earth. And so in one sense, then the, the kingdom has already come. With the coming of Christ, with the coming of the king, the kingdom has come. In another sense, the, the kingdom has already always been here because God has always been ruling and reigning. And yet we are called to pray, your kingdom come. Luke mentions the kingdom of God 46 times in his gospel account. This is a very important concept in Luke, the kingdom of God. And it's important in the Word of God. It should be important in our hearts as well. And so we pray. It is such an important part of Scripture. So, so then, what do we pray for when we pray, Your kingdom come? Well, the Baptist Catechism, again, helpfully answers the question. In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. And so there are, there are three principles that you see here that we pray for when you, when, you pray for the, when you talk about the kingdom of God. The first is the kingdom of providence, and the kingdom of grace, and the kingdom of glory. Very briefly, the, the kingdom of providence has already come, as I mentioned earlier, because, because God is already and God has always been ruling and reigning. There, there's no kingdom that could ever legitimately or even have any chance of advancing really one iota against the kingdom of God. And so even as we, we look at our culture and we, it looks as though the forces of darkness are advancing, we know that, that even the most wicked schemes of the devil and of men are ultimately used to advance the kingdom of God. God is sovereign over the devil and his wiles. And actually, in God's omnipotence and his omniscience, God uses even those schemes to advance God's own kingdom. I mean, think about the cross. According to the, the plan and foreknowledge of God, he sent his son. He, he handed his son over to death the hands of wicked men. See that in Acts chapter 2, 22 and following. God is sovereign over everything, though he is not the author of evil, but he uses evil for the advance of his kingdom. So when it comes to the kingdom of providence, you don't really need to pray for the kingdom of providence because the kingdom of providence is already here. Now you can pray to, that you, God would help you to submit to the kingdom of his providence. But as far as the praying for the advance of God's kingdom of providence, you don't need to pray for that. When it comes, though, to the, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of grace, here we have something that we do pray for. And this refers to the, the spiritual state in which man is willingly submitted to God's word through the Holy Spirit. This is the, the sphere of this kingdom is the, the heart and the mind and the will of God's people. 
So it reveals three key areas of prayer. Three, there's three subheadings under this. If you're taking notes, the kingdom of grace also includes the kingdom of, sorry, the kingdom of Christians, the kingdom of the church, and the kingdom of conversion. So we pray for Christians, for conversions, and for the church. Again, the kingdom of grace was inaugurated with the coming of Christ. The kingdom will be, will be established with the kingdom of glory. So we live really in the already, not yet. We're in that, that in-between time where the kingdom has been inaugurated but has not yet been fully and finally fulfilled. And so then when we talk about the kingdom of grace, we're praying for, for the advance of these things. So we pray for Christians for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in the local church and, and our, our brothers and sisters around the world. I really like what, what Joshua said earlier about their, their really when we pray for the, the persecuted church, we're really praying for the church. There's really only one church, Christ's church. So when we're praying for our brothers and sisters, we're, we're praying for the church. But we're also, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but we're praying for individual Christians. These are individual brothers and sisters for, for in, in our own church family who are struggling with sin and, and with sickness and, and all sorts of trials. And so it's our privilege to pray for them. And in praying for your brothers and sisters, you're praying for the advance of the kingdom of God. But I think quite often there's, there's a gap. It's kind of a disconnect. Because we, we pray for, for our, our brothers and sisters, and so we should out of love for them. But, as great as our love for them may be, and we hope it's there in advancing, that's not the love that you have for your brothers and sisters in prayer must not be your ultimate priority. Your priority in prayer must be for the advance of God's kingdom. So when you pray for your brothers and sisters who are, are struggling with, with sickness or, or sin or, or anything else, and even for our brothers and sisters that, that are, are, are suffering persecution. We're not praying ultimately for them, but for God's kingdom to be advanced. And when you, when you pray like this, it really, it really drags your prayer up out of selfishness. Even when you, you pray for yourself and for the things that you're struggling with, you, when you, you, you need to submit your person and your desires and all those things that, that are important to you to the kingdom of God. And that elevates your prayer. You're beginning to pray as Jesus has taught you to pray in this model prayer. The same is true when you pray for conversions. We, we pray that the gospel would advance in our community and around the world. And, and so we pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest, uh, Luke 10, 2. And, and when we pray this, we're helping to advance the kingdom of God. When we pray for missionaries and Christians around the world, we are, are praying for the advance of the kingdom of God. Most of us have heard of, of William Carey, the father of the modern missions movement. But how many have heard of Joshua Marshman and William Ward and John Sutcliffe and Andrew Fuller and John Ryland and Samuel Pierce? Now, some of these names might be a little bit more familiar to you, but, but, but none are, as, are nearly as familiar as that of William Carey. But these men were the ones who daily committed to pray for William Carey while he was out in the field. And without their faithful prayers, Carey would not have been able, able to accomplish much. But he testifies to the fact that, that these, these men 
The prayers of these men helped him and empowered him in his ministry. Now, people might not remember your name, but maybe they'll remember the names of the one that you prayed for. The ones that you prayed for who were, are, who were seeking to, to advance the kingdom out there, and their, their names might be more familiar, but they're not more familiar to God. And so when we pray for the advance of God's kingdom, again, we, we want to see souls saved. We're motivated by, by, by re- wanting to rescue our, our loved ones from hell. But that is not the ultimate priority in prayer. The ultimate priority in prayer, even as, as you, you love people and you don't want to see them go to hell, your ultimate priority in prayer needs to be for the advance of God's kingdom. That, that you want to see rebels become worshipers so that God will get the glory that is due his name. You want to see the kingdom of God advanced in hearts. And so you pray for the advance of his kingdom. Likewise, for the advance of the kingdom of, of grace in the church. Step back just for a moment and look at the pronouns in this prayer. Your name, your kingdom, addressing it to God, and as we'll focus next week, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. We ourselves forgive everyone. Lead us not into temptation. These are all in the second and the first person plural. This is corporate. Yes, you can pray for these things individually, but this really needs to be more global. This needs to be for this local church and for your brothers and sisters around the world. And so we pray. And we'll see next week, and we, when we, Lord willing, as we look at these for God's, for God's provision. This is corporate. This is for the church. And again, the same way. You want to see the church advance because you want to see God's kingdom advance. Yes, the, the, the church is, is assaulted on every side and, and by schisms rent asunder as we, as we sing. But we pray that God's kingdom would advance and we're confident that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And so we're, we're praying with God according to the, the will of God from the word of God for the advance of his kingdom of grace in the church. Finally, we pray for the kingdom of glory. We pray for the kingdom of glory. This refers to the the consummation, to the return of Christ. Again, the kingdom was inaugurated with the incarnation of Christ. It will be fulfilled at his return. I like the 1644 Baptist Confession of Faith here defines this kingdom, saying the kingdom shall then be fully perfected when he, shall, when he shall the second time come in glory to reign amongst his saints and to be admired of all of them which do believe when he shall put down all rule and authority under his feet that the glory of the Father may be full and perfectly manifested in the Son and that the glory of the Father and the Son in all his members. So when Jesus came, he, he came to announce the kingdom. He said he was, was sent for this purpose that to, to announce the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom, but he also came as the coming king. The king was coming into his kingdom. 
his people knew him not. It's only a small remnant that, that came to Christ. And, and when Jesus ascended, he promised that he would return. In fact, when we receive the Lord's Supper later on, where he says that, that he would not eat again of the fruit of the vine or drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So even in the Lord's Supper, we have a, a promise of his return. We have a promise of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And so we have the privilege of praying, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. May we be among those who have loved his appearing. His appearing, 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul prays for Christ's return in 1 Corinthians 16.22. Revelation 22, verse 7 and 12 and 20, the Lord says, I am coming. And then John the Revelator replies, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The second last verse in the whole of the Bible is John praying for the return of Christ. May his prayer be our prayer as we pray for the advance of God's kingdom, as we pray, Your kingdom come. So again, consider the priority of prayer. We, we, we want many people to return to the Lord because, because, well, sorry, many people want the Lord to return because they're tired of their problems. Because they're tired of their pain, their sickness, their, their troubles, or even their sins. And because they're fed up with the sins that they see around them. And so they want Jesus to come back just to bring an end to it all. And He will. And that day every knee will bow, bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. But again, don't let your prayers be bogged down in, in just selfish concerns. Because ultimately when you pray, surely, when you pray for the kingdom of God to come, when you pray for the return of Christ, it is for the advance of the kingdom of God because you want to see God's God's reign and rule extended over all of his creation. You want to see his justice brought down because you love God and because you love his holiness and because you want to see everyone acknowledge who he is and submit to his reign and his rule. So this is the first division of, the, the, of this prayer, of the, the model prayer. We've seen the, the person in prayer and the priority in prayer. And may we all pray for the advance of the kingdom of God. May we all pray to the person of God, glorifying him and setting him apart as holy for who he is. There is really no higher privilege. There is no higher responsibility. But again, coming back to my initial question. Are you hallowing God's name in prayer? Are you seeking the advance of God's kingdom in prayer? Or are your prayers more about advancing the kingdom of self? I think we have to admit that none of us are doing this to the extent that God calls us to in his word. Far from it. We have failed to seek to hallow God's name and and failed to advance God's kingdom in our, in our lives. And we've failed to seek to hallow God's name and to advance God's kingdom in our prayers. And, but this petition also means to ask forgiveness for your failure to do so, to, to confess this to God as sin and to cast 
yourself on Christ who died even for this sin. Even for the sin of selfish prayers. It means looking to Christ as the only one who did hallow God's name in prayer. To the, it means looking to the king. It means looking at the obedience of Christ credited to your account. And this again becomes further fodder for prayer. Brothers and sisters, God does not accept us or reject us on the basis of our less than perfect prayers. And it's a good thing because none of us would make the cut. We are not saved through perfect prayers, but through faith in the perfect Son. One of the glories of the gospel is that Christ's perfect record of obedience is credited to your account. It's as though you prayed all of the perfect prayers of Jesus. Not only did he suffer and die for your sins, but his righteousness is imputed to you. His righteous prayers are on your record. And not only that, we think not only about the, the prayers of Jesus as he prayed without ceasing, as he, as he prayed through the night, as the fact of all of his prayers were, were motivated by, by love of God, love of neighbor, seeking the glory of God. We don't just rejoice in, in those past prayers of Jesus, but we rejoice in the fact that Jesus is continuing to pray for us. Even at this very moment, brothers and sisters, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is interceding for you before the throne of God. The second person of the Trinity is praying for you. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is also praying for you because we don't know what to pray for as we are. I mean, we, we don't know. We, we try to be, be I, I hope we, we will grow in understanding this as we seek to pray according to Scripture, but we still don't really know the full extent of what we should be praying. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. So God takes our weak and our perfect prayers and polishes them up, cleans them up, adds, adds his own righteous prayers to the mix and offers them to the Father for you and me. So pray to God. Pray to God your Father, confident that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are interceding for you. Yes, seek by God's grace to, to learn to grow in prayer, adopting this model prayer and, and, other, uh, and so many other prayers of, of, and passages of Scripture into your prayer life. And you will find your prayer life enriched. You will find yourself growing in prayer. But praise God for the righteousness of Christ that makes our prayers possible and makes our prayers heard. Let's pray together. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. For the glory of your name and for the advance of your kingdom, Amen.